0: Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Cinetopia podcast. This episode is a collaboration brought to you by Take One Magazine. My name is Jim Ross, Managing Editor of Take One Magazine, and a regular member of the Cinetopia podcast crew. However, to help me round up some of the films at the 2019 Edinburgh International Film Festival, I was joined by some of the other writers from Take One. We'll be back with our regular show in July with our regular crew, but on this occasion I was joined by Serena Scataini, Mark Nelson, Chris Dobson, Amber Heath and Joshua Reagan. In this episode, we'll review the festival's opening film, Boys in the Wood, Beatles-themed romantic comedy Yesterday, Thai drama Manta Ray, and the powerful documentary Scheme Birds. We also have a second episode where we cover other films at the festival, but we'll begin this one with Boys in the Wood.
1: Wait a minute. What's this? You, uh, you doing forensics? It's drugs. No. Oh. Hmm. That's rabbit poo though.
2: I know. I knew that. I, I was just... double checking. Found this as well. Beetroots. Some sort of agricultural audio book.
1: This is no audio book, Hamish.
0: Okay, so the opening film of the film festival was Boys in the Wood, which I think is the feature debut of Ninian Doff. So the folks seen it are Chris and Mark of the crowd here. So Chris, I'm going to come to you first. Um, Just tell us a little bit about the film, what the plot is, and then some of your initial thoughts about how you found it.
3: Yeah, I was just reading the blurb of it online, uh, and I can read that out because it kind of sums it up well. Set deep in the Scottish Highlands, it's an anarchic cocktail of generational politics, hip hop loving farmers, and hallucinogenic rabbit shites. So it's kind of a lot is going on all at once. Um, it's funny, it's silly, it's quite bizarre. The villain is played by um, Eddie Izzard. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. And it the, the hip hop loving farmers, I'm not so sure about. But they um, so just turn up. <laughs> they do indeed just turn off a bit. So I, I think what I would agree is that it's a completely mental film, quite frankly. There's a lot of strange stuff going on, uh, especially the hallucinogenic rabbit mess. That, that was not something I was expecting. So it's clearly going for very off-the-wall humour. Um, it's got a lot of rapid cutting. It's trying to move at an enormous pace. Do you think it works? Did it, did it hit its marks? It's a bit messy, I
3: guess, because it's trying to do so much. Uh, so some of it works, some of it doesn't. For instance, there's the hip-hop tunes of DJ Beat Root, and there's some interesting effects going on. It kind of, it looks stupid, but it's supposed to. So I think the film doesn't take itself seriously. It's just there to entertain,
0: and it succeeds in that, I'd say. I think I'd agree with that. Um, I find the effects quite imaginative. I mean, yes, they are completely daft looking, um, but you know, when you're meant to be high on kind of concentrated mushrooms, I suppose it's, it's meant to look a little bit crazy. Uh, Mark, what did, how did you find it? Well,
4: so I'll say that I didn't laugh more than once or twice, and those were both instances which did not involve any of the main characters. That's a bit of a problem. Um, they were both bits involving the inept Highland police force. Yeah who are currently on a, a hunt to find a bread thief when terrorism supposedly comes their way in the form of, um, I forget what the character's name is, I think it's Paul, who's the... the, the, the which one? It's the, the yeah, uh, sorry, I you know.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Duncan, okay. Duncan. Yeah. I showed you how memorable you found the character yeah, 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 yeah. I it's funny you say that because the um I have to be honest, the, the subplot with the bread thief and the incompetent police was the one bit that didn't really do it for me. Like when it was when it was amongst all the you know, the kids and kind of the anarchy around that and long running gags that then go through the film, that that I really kind of got on board with. The police subplot really kind of left me cold, to be honest with you. I think it could easily have dialed that back a little bit. The rest of it kind of reminded me, and I've, I've seen this be mentioned as the lazy comparison, but I think it's also the most obvious one for a reason, is it, it had a lot of a feeling of Edgar Wright's early films to me. Um, that same quick cutting, the same kind of like, you know, very humorously quickly delivered cutaway gags. Um, Chris, I suppose I'll come come back to you. How did you find the, the chemistry routine, like the main cast, the three boys? Because that's who we spend most of it with, obviously. As, as you mentioned, Eddie Izzard plays the villain who's kind of this... He's basically in upper-class twit mode, I, I, I wrote, as this uh, local landowner. But most of the time it's with the three boys. How did you find their performances? Yeah, I guess it's the standard
3: format of three or four boys almost kind of all with quite distinctive characters. So there's the nerdy one, the, um, the cool one, I guess, the the dumb one, the more cynical one. So the kind of standard character tropes, um, it, it, it was fine. I felt like it was a tamer version of like in between us, that sort of humour. If anything, it could have been more outrageous, more, you know, shocking. It, it felt quite... More, more outrageous? <laughs> yeah, because it was, it was silly, it was like a daft, but it's kind of... It, it wasn't too... Their humour was quite, I guess, because they're a bit younger. They're kind of teens. Um, yeah, it, it's... It, the shocking elements were more in, um, say, visuals. So it was quite violent at times. But well, in terms of actually what they 're joking about it, it was it wasn't too
0: yeah, you're right i I totally agree with you and the, the boys are are they're very firmly in the archetype you know type of mold you know the, the various different facets of that, and I think that's maybe why it, it reminds you a little bit of the in because I got a little bit of that as well I'm sure, there's, I'm sure there's a
4: Duke of Edinburgh moment in the in betweeners as well so that fits in here
0: yeah, and the, the characters fit there with could that be why you didn't find that funny, Mark? Like, it's too, it's too obvious, perhaps. No, so
4: it's just more. It's more about the. It's more about the chemistry between them. I didn't really buy. They're not. They're not very specific comic performances. I really like comic performances that have a lot of detail. These are just there, and they are off the screen, and then they're gone. And also, like for all that you say, it's an anarchic film. It's. Structurally, it's as rote as anything because you know that he has this little checklist and you know by the end of it that the checklist is going to be completed. Mm-hmm. And I just found this a bit dull. And yeah, like, yeah.
3: Like, yeah, the character development is rather rushed. Uh, it's like, but At one point, there's a big betrayal of, of one of the characters by, by his other friends. Um, quite, well, quite major, but it's kind of just forgotten about later on. So I thought the film was going to go darker, I was like, oh, is this going to get twisted like Calibre or something? But it all stays really light-hearted, despite the darker subject matter, you know? Because it's about murder and hunting and like, you know...
0: I like how you say it was, you expect it to go darker and then immediately mention murder.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's it? a very mixed film, it's, it's about these dark subjects. And yet it's all kind of like, oh, bread Thief and stuff. So as the opening gala film, I think it was a really good choice, because it was just fun, people laughed.
0: Yeah, I, I think clearly I found it funnier, I think, than the two of you. The, the, the one thing I want to talk about, just to finish off on this film, though, is the one bit where, in terms of what he was trying to go for, I didn't really find all that great. Now it's it's trying to do a bit of social commentary. Mm-hmm. Now it is, it is and it's trying to do it very clearly with the um, the villain character of Eddie Izzard. I'm wondering what you two thought about how the film handled that because there's a lot of stuff floating around about it. you know. So the kids that are on the the kids that are on this Duke of Edinburgh expedition, with the exception of of one of them, and this is kind of played for laughs, they're all working class kids. Um, they have been sent on this expedition kind of against their will a little bit, and they find themselves in conflict with this very clearly upper-class landowner, effectively, in the form of Eddie Izzard, and then later his, uh, I presume, wife, actually. I don't really know what the relationship was between the two of them. That's an assumption on my part. The Duchess. The Duchess, indeed. They, they, they designate him the Duke. Um, because originally they think it's the Duke of Edinburgh coming after them, basically. But how do you feel it handled that aspect of it? Because I clearly laughed a lot of it, at a lot of it. Chris, you clearly laughed a bit at it. Mark, you clearly laughed hardly anything at it. But the other strand of it is this satirical element. How do you think it did on that bit? I found it, yeah, contrived. It's kind of tacked on.
3: I think that's maybe why Eddie Izzard would like to get involved, because it's kind of this topical issue of young versus old in the context of Brexit and all that, I mean it kind of doesn't mention that, but it's obviously there on the periphery, Um, I guess, I think it's voiced by Dean towards the end, he sort of does this monologue, um, which deliberately gets a bit overblown and goes off on a tangent, but it's just...
0: Yeah, there's kind, of a, there's kind of a monologue and a counter-monologue as well. Um, so you've got, as you say, Dean, who's kind of one of the boys of the group, gives this very impassioned speech about how things have been ruined for his generation, Then it's kind of got a, a counter-monologue from Eddie Izzard's character, um, you know, saying you don't know how well you've got it. I, I don't think it needed that. I'm 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 going to guess that you maybe agree with that, Mark. I
4: basically stopped thinking about it by that point. But then, uh, the moment where Dean delivers that monologue, if you think that there's any, uh, you know, sort of remove from the filmmaker's point of view that maybe they're just not editorializing, they're just mm. making characters say what they think. No, he's italicizing this as this is exactly what I think. And isn't this a great indictment of these upper class villains? And it just struck me as as you said, a bit contrived.
0: Yeah, and I, I, would, entirely, I would entirely agree with that. At that point, I, the, the funny thing is there's certain phrasing in that, the monologue for both Eddie Izzard and uh, the actor who plays Dean where it doesn't really fit with the situation, really. Like, you know, there's a lot of talk about you've ruined everything. It's like, well, what has what he ruined? They've been shooting each other for the past hour. There's not really a situation. So I, I think, Mark, you've hit the nail on the head there with its, it's fully Ninian Doff's voice coming through there because he wrote the script as well, yeah. of course. And
4: there's that moment where right after he does this monologue, right at the end, there's the sort of reconciliatory moment and then he says, I might go into politics myself. You go, yeah. well that would have been interesting to know an hour and a half ago, <laughs> um, which would have you know, made us know this person a wee bit more. Because instead he's just a bit of a blank.
3: Yeah, I think at the beginning of the film he's determined to just follow his family and work in a fish factory. And then suddenly he wants to be a politician and I'm like, cool, but where did that come from?
0: You know? Yeah, it does kind of come out of the blue at the end. Um, so I think we'll leave it there for Boys in the Wood which of course was the opening gala uh, I think the most memorable thing about that for me is Chris here informing me that the ice cream was free at that event uh, and I didn't realise this <laughs> so that was uh, that, that was the real gut punch I think rather than the quality of the film I think there's a lot of laughs to be heard with it and the satirical elements maybe not so well handled but if you like the likes of Edgar Wright with TT and things like that I'd give it a go and see what you think of it
4: This was my last gig. If it has happened by now, it's like a miracle.
1: Miracles happen. <laughs> what happened? Oh, electricity flicked off all over the world. <laughs>
0: Yesterday, Ellie bought you a present.
3: All oh, my troubles seem wow. so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh,
0: I believe in yesterday. Oh when did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Okay, so the next film we're going to talk about is uh, one of the biggest films at the festival, I think it's fair to say, highest profile, which makes it rather ironic that only two of us here have seen it. Um, So it's myself and Josh have seen this. And it's Yesterday, the new Danny Boyle film, which I think got its Scottish premiere at the festival. That that euphemistic term they use for when something's clearly already screened in London or something.
2: <laughs> it had its premiere in Galston, I believe, in East Anglia.
0: Ah, oh, okay, that makes yeah. that, that makes sense. Well, on on that note, on that note, clearly demand more than the no. Uh, Josh, give us a little bit of a just a, a summary of the, a summary of the film because it's quite an interesting concept and basically yeah. the whole film is built around. So it. So basically, the idea about
2: yesterday is that at some point there's an event where all the lights in the world turn out and everything kind of turns off for a little while and then everybody forgets about the Beatles amongst other things as well, but mostly about the Beatles is kind of what the uh, the film focuses about and it follows the story of... uh, I can't remember his name... Uh, there it is, Jack Malick follows the story of Jack Malick as he uses the Beatles songs to catapult himself to stardom
0: yeah, and basically, so he goes through that, and we st- we start off, we get a little bit of an introduction with him as like a, a struggling musician, right? So we're, we're aware of the fact that he has some musical ability. Um, you know, he's obviously not made a name for himself, but fortunately he's able to, you know, play the instruments required and is a big enough fan of the Beatles to remember most of their stuff, but we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, how did you find the film as a, as a comedy, right? Because that's what that's what yeah. it's pitching itself as. Was it, was it funny? Did you like the characters well, I, Were you engaged? I
2: thought the humour was very good. Um, I, I was laughing a lot and I thought that was mainly due, uh, due to the editing. I feel like the editing really complemented the humour by holding just a little bit longer than was necessary, just to allow the joke to have a little bit of time to settle and also just to get the reactions from people, as I think the key to comedy is reaction. If you don't see the reactions on people's faces, it's not comedy because you don't know how to react. It's almost like the movie has to signal you to laugh. Um, and I feel like a lot of the humour was... It wasn't Danny Boyle humour. It wasn't dark, witty humour. But it was kind of sarcastic. It was dry. Uh, and I enjoy that kind of humour myself, and I think a lot of people will. And I think this is from Richard Curtis's uh, screenwriting. Uh, And it come, it kind of you get echoes in Love Actually and um, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, And I definitely feel like that was the film's biggest strength was its writing.
0: It's it's fun. It's funny you you say that because I, I agree I agree I do think the writing was its biggest strength. I also think it was his biggest weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll come to the direction in a minute and kind of Danny Boyle's role in this. But I would say, I think it's fair to say that it's very, if you didn't tell anybody who wrote the film and you didn't tell anybody who directed the film, I think it's fair to say that they would be more quick, uh, or quicker rather to say it was a Richard Curtis script I than ab- a Dan I
2: absolutely film. agree, yeah.
0: Now, that comes with its pluses and minuses. Um, you know, I think people can be a bit down on Richard Curtis. He's, he's written a lot of good stuff, and you, you mentioned some of them there. I'd probably go more with Four Weddings and a Funeral than, than Love, actually. But he, he, he is also kind of has this slightly corny, uh, cheesy humour, which is, can be very saccharine. I yeah. think this film largely avoids that, That doesn't mean it it doesn't have other issues. Much like you, I really enjoyed the the humour and we'll we'll come back to that. I think my main issue with it is really the writing of some of the characters. Um, So, the love interest and Jack's initial manager before this incident where everybody forgets the Beatles is played by Lily James and in my opinion she is completely wasted. Really, you know, she's she's set up as quite an interesting character to begin with, but then after that, she's really reduced to very little other than just a a symbol of everything Jack has lost. There's no real development of her character. I find the obstacles that are put in the way of their relationship, I I, I wouldn't even say contrived, because they don't even bother to contrive anything, quite frankly. they, They seem pretty minor to me, because the obvious thing to go with is that they now inhabit completely different worlds right yeah. so it, it's obviously not a spoiler to say that eventually he does make it to kind of superstar off the back of the Beatles um, discography but he doesn't take her along with him for you know some reasons initially which are fine but then they try to revisit this romance and it's presented as this massive problem that they can't resolve and I'm looking at going yeah you can there, there, there's not a problem here you, you know and i'm not I'm not trying to trivialize. The, the differences that they, they come up with, but it doesn't go with this idea of they now inhabit different worlds. It goes a different route, and it kind of makes it almost nonsensical, contrived, that part of it. So the strength of the film is very much in the humour. The music, obviously. I'm a big Beatles fan, so, I mean, who isn't, really? But the music's good, the humour's good, and most of the performances are good, like what Lily James is given to work with I think she does quite a good job, I just don't think she gets much.
2: I think she's, especially in a lot of movies, like Baby Driver for instance, she's typecast into the same roles all the time, she always plays the girlfriend, and in a way it's kind of a bit derogatory because she seems almost like a damsel in distress, somebody that needs rescuing, something to be achieved. and. That has been overdone to infinity and it is very annoying.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Baby Driver actually, because as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, this is exactly the same role that she was given. Exactly. There. Yeah. Um, I think that what I'll swing back to because because I, I think it's safe to say I think we both enjoyed this film. Yeah. Um, it does have its issues. Like it's not perfect by any means. But one thing I'm going to swing back to is. Um, the music and the performances associated with it. So the main, uh, the main people in this scenario are obviously uh, Himish Patel, who plays Jack and is performing all the Beatles uh, songs. And then there's also, we, we get a little bit of um, real life intrigue with Ed Sheeran playing a vision, uh, not a vision, a version of himself. Because obviously Ed Sheeran is from Suffolk, uh, which is where the film is set. It's where Jack, the character, lives. And basically he performs the song In My Life on local television. Ed Sheedon sees this when he's um, sort of like back in his home county and takes Jack under his wing. So after that there's a lot of kind of stuff around the music production world which comes through Ed Sheedon and obviously Jack's performances and the songs as well. How did you find well, those
2: two elements? I for? think there's an interesting contrast between the two characters because um, Jack as a character is a kind of scruffy boy from East Anglia, much like Ed Sheeran is a scruffy boy from East Anglia. They have kind of parallel storylines and parallel stories to fame. However, seeing Ed Sheeran is a problem, because he's obviously Ed Sheeran. And although they've kind of added to Ed Sheeran, he's more than he actually is. As a person, I'm sure he's quite, probably quite dull and not very interesting.
0: I mean, I'd argue his music's quite dull and not very interesting, but that's, that, that, that's a very subjective take, I
2: think. Um, but obviously they kind of spruced him up a bit, and they've actually made him a character of the narrative, which I thought was very well done. But what annoys me is these constant cameos within TV and film of celebrities, and it works with something like um, The Big Shot which had uh, a couple of celebrities to kind of talk through various difficult ideas about banking, which nobody would have ever got otherwise. Um, And it kind of works in that respect. But then, and I'm gonna use Ed Sheeran as an example again, um, in Game of Thrones, Ed Sheeran is in Game of Thrones and he's in a pretty pivotal moment for Arya's character. And it just completely brings you out the scene. It just completely ruins it because he shouldn't be in that world. It works better in this,
0: but it's still a problem. I, I mean, I would argue it's a, a problem for a different, because I, the idea of having a, a real life musical character, uh, or personality rather, to, to guide him through that process, I kind of get that, I think that as a device that, that works. The, the problem that I have with it, so there's one part of it where I agree with you and what you wrote in the, the Take One review, which is, it leads to a lot of reliance on his music as well, which, you know, I'm I'm not a massive Ed Sheeran fan, to be honest. But, you know, I, I accept that I'm probably in the minority in that respect um, these days. But that's one part of it, which I think I, I agree with. Where I d- disagree is, I think you found Ed Sheeran reasonably believable on screen. I did not. I found him as wooden as they come. <laughs> and I do not understand how you could be so wooden... Playing yourself, um, so for me it was actually one of the the less involving parts of the film. It was one performance where it just didn't work to me, and you know I don't want to I, I don't want to you know chit upon Ed Sheeran from a great height here because I think you know he, he's not an actor in fairness yeah. to him. Um, I think where it did work, and I was quite interested in the way they went about it, was the music because obviously you know the world has forgotten about the Beatles in this scenario, so the Beatles songs are going to come back through the Jack character, but they're not going to come back exactly the same. No, they're not the same songs. How do you think that worked? Um, I, I feel
2: like, where if you're going to this movie expecting a complete rehash of Beatles songs in a kind of musical way, you're going to be disappointed. Because it does have that unique concept, like you said, with it being remade. It's part of the narrative. However, I feel like they settled in the middle with that. They could have done less of that and made them more faithful to the originals or they could have done more with that and made them completely different to the originals. Um, Whereas now they just sort of settled in the middle where it's kind of like the originals and some lyrics are wrong and and there's a particular scene where he sings um, help and it doesn't sound anything like the original for narrative purposes. But I feel like that's gonna disappoint a
0: lot of people. It's interesting, because it worked for me. I quite liked it. And they, they do have a little bit of fun with the concept. Like, I mean, one joke, would, which is in the trailer, right? So I'm not going to, I don't really consider this a spoiler, is, you know, it gets suggested that Hey Jude, which of course, I mean, it has no context here. They have no idea where the name Jude has come from. And of course, like, in the original writing of the song, it wasn't Jude, it was Jules, it was Julian Lennon, uh, John Lennon's son. But here, it gets suggested that it's changed to Hey Dude. You know, so they do have a little bit of fun with the concept, and I found one thing I found really quite relatable was Jack trying to remember the lyrics of songs because we we all do this. We you know, and like there's all YouTube channels dedicated, you know, misheard lyrics and things, and like. A lot of the Beatles songs—they—they're quite intricate lyrics-wise. You know, I mean, they didn't have "I Am the Walrus" in the film, for instance, but like something like that. I mean, like you can never remember that on the first time through. So there's a lot of things which are relatable humor. There's a lot of very dry, sarcastic humor that you reference. I don't think it's perfect. It's got issues with the script. Um, how you react to the music, I think, depends on how much reverence you've got for the Beatles. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed it, but. I kind of enjoy it when you kind of get cover versions of songs anyway, so some are faithful, some are not. Um, so that is going to be out in the UK on June 28th, I believe. Um, so I, no doubt that will get a nice, a nice healthy run. Um, I think it's safe to say though, if you are a Richard Curtis fan, you should check this out Yeah, book.
2: definitely. Anyone that loves Richard Curtis will probably love this movie.
0: If you're a Danny Boyle fan, oh, maybe less story. so. Um, you know, this is, I, I don't think you'd put this in the same stables like Train Trainspotting, Shagrin, yeah. mean, even Slumdog Millionaire actually had, if, its, had its hard moments, yeah, but this it doesn't.
2: It's like you said earlier, if you didn't know who directed this, you would not assume it would have been Danny Boyle. Yeah. You would have assumed it would have been another director.
0: Yeah. So, I think, if you're into Richard Curtis films, uh, you know, it's something very light. There's not a lot of, you know, it's so light it might float away, really, to be perfectly honest. But it's worth checking out if you're into that, I think. Um, Danny Boyle fans may be a bit disappointed. Okay, so the next film we're going to talk about is Manta Ray, uh, which is obviously uh, at the festival after a successful screening at the Venice Film Festival, where it won the Orizonte Award for, I think, best film. Yeah. You know, i right So the focus on that are uh, myself, Serena, and Mark. So, Mark, I'm going to start off with you. Um, just give us, a, again, much as we've done for the other films, a little bit of an intro as to what the film's about and who, who's involved and so forth.
4: Sure. So it's directed by Futafong Arunfeng. I didn't. Know, I couldn't see if they had directed anything else. I think it's maybe a first feature.
1: It's a first feature. A first feature. Is it like a, it was a cinematographer? I think it still is. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's the first feature it's by first him. Feature. Okay.
4: So uh, essentially, starts off in like the, this utterly strange fashion, but it's really beguiling. Where someone is walking through a, sorry, a forest, and they're covered in what seem like Christmas lights, or kind of there's. <laughs> There's sparkling lights and there's this droning like no, there's this noise of like f- you know haulage like yeah. something mm-hmm. is being like torn through the wood yeah. and this doesn't connect to anything for quite a while I would say not until about the last twenty minutes but it should be noted that anything that uh, anything that appears in the allegorical material of the film is anchored by the opening inscription which is for the Rohingya for the Rohingya yeah. Muslims in mm-hmm. uh, Burma or Myanmar and. I'll say that it's about a man who is walking through, this. we must assume, the same forest, and he comes across a, a soldier lying face down in the mud with a bullet in his chest, and he takes him into his house, helps him recuperate, they eventually become friends, although the soldier is mute. We don't hear him talk at all, the only noise that he makes is a sort of grunt, and in one scene where he's taught to hold his breath before he goes underwater, a kind of blow Mm, which he does again a lovely point at the end but things are complicated by uh, an ex-wife who comes back into the picture and the man who found the soldier has a habit in the woods or in the forests where he puts his ear to the ground and you're not quite sure what it is he's, he's doing but he eventually unearths these little gemstones that are buried in the forest floor and he takes these and he would have made them for his wife his wife no longer being around, decides to polish them off and then throw them into the sea so that they attract the manta ray. What the you know sense of this is, I'm not so sure, but I found it totally arresting.
1: It's interesting. The fact that you're saying that to you, the, uh, the mute character is like a soldier. So uh, it's not the same reading I have oh. of the film, so to me it's like a refugee to so basically it's like drifting on the coastal shore and he's basically rescued, I mean he's wounded and he's rescued by the main protagonist like yeah, the other fishermen. So and linking to that I have like a different reading of everything else, like the lights, the manta rays and stuff, uh, for example the fact that, um, you know, the fisherman says something like that the, uh, the manta rays are attracted by the uh, the gem and then you know, in the in the woods there are these gems that are like glittering, glimmering under the moonlight and then also some of the soldiers, maybe, I don't know, some human trafficker, we're not sure who they are, they're just going around with like all these Christmas lights, um, wearing like a dress, so um, it could be like a connection between the two, like um, these refugees, yeah, the Rohingya are like the uh, manta both of them attracted to those lights, and then in the end the outcome will be their death, eventually somehow, because of like cruel people, the word, and everything else. And so yeah, I was like struck by the fact that you thought he was a soldier. Is there, is there anything yeah, yeah, that, I th- that I th- suggested I thought, I
4: thought it was clothing, I thought he was wearing Nike, but I could be completely wrong about
0: that.
1: So, you can buy that at a market or, yeah, I mean. <laughs>
0: I, I think what, what this kind of highlights is a little bit about what you get from the film or the fact that people mm. can get different things from the film. Now, I, I, th- I would say my, my reaction was a little bit more like Serena's, but what, what is clear is it's very much based in metaphor, yeah. allegory. It's, it, it, has a, it has a plot of sorts mm-hmm. um, in that once this, uh, this man is rescued, yeah. he's taken into... Um, He's taken to the home of the original sort of fisherman character, who mm. who finds him, and basically he kind of nurses him back to health. And yeah. you know, he basically—it's almost like he becomes a sort of father figure to him, almost in a sense. Like it's kind, kind of like yeah. showing him how to go back into into society. the The sparkling lights thing is a recurring motif throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, like as we've discussed, the, it opens. The film opens with that, mm. in what is. Kind of a stand apart scene until later, but it is something which keeps coming back uh, throughout the the rest of the film. And I think the, the different readings here really just unpack the fact that I think you'll be peeling layers back on this mm-hmm. for quite some time. I think th- th- the main thing for people to know about it really is, I think it looks stunning. Yep. Yeah, sure. Uh, it had me basically from the opening shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shot that Mark described of, uh, at that point, that's very clearly a, a, a soldier um, treading through this forest, mm-hmm. covered in Christmas lights, Like it really had me from, from the get go. And the rest of the film largely lives up to that. I mean, there's some stunning shots. There, there were a couple of bits that didn't work quite so well for me. When he's been taught the breathing exercises, it didn't quite okay. sit right with me to it. I, I really loved that
1: together with the scene like in the um, kind of rundown home of the fishermen, you know, all, of the, all the lights and mm-hmm. stuff and they're kind of dancing, that's like a bonding, a sort of connection yeah. between them at the time mm-hmm. and then after that the, the scene when he's like uh, teaching him how to breathe underwater mm-hmm. so it felt like their bonding is kind of turning into an imprinting of sort like this guy is kind of an animal and is like learning stuff through the other one.
4: And there's also a stylistic change in those moments yeah. too, because when they start dancing, it's the first time that it's not um, objective camera work, it goes to a point yes, of view yes, shot, right. and then it does that again when they start mm-hmm. uh, the breathing practices. Yes. Um, the thing I'd mentioned briefly to Serena before we saw the film was that I'd seen a lot of reviews of this, which had all mentioned, mostly by white critics, has to be said, all mentioned Apachapong were ascetical as a comparison. The substance of the comparison seems to be that uh, the film is based in Thailand and involves a forest. Yeah. <laughs> it's not seeming to be much yeah. more than that. Mm-hmm. I thought like, the actual, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, I think the better, more grounded comparison to be made is with Simon Liang's films, the Taiwanese daughter. Um, there's a scene in, a sort of not quite a bathtub, sort of I um, I don't know how you put it, it's almost like a, it's just like a barrel of water where they're bathing, where the ex-wife is bathing with the mute so the, the mute, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the mute character. The mute character. The mute character, yeah. and they have this moment where she starts singing to him, but they're kind of just together in this pool of water, and it's very much like a short film by Simon Liang called No No Sleep, where two characters are aware that they're both in a sort of hot spring together, but don't know how close they are to each other and don't have a sense of connection with each other. And I felt like that was, if not referenced, it was just, you know, similar in a way.
0: So if, if you were going to speak about it, like recommend us film and so on, I think it's safe to say that I did. so the, all three of us saw this in the press screening at the festival, and I think we would all heartily recommend it. Mm-hmm. What was the standout element for for you, would you say? Are we talking... Because to me, I don't think the plot is really a standout element. I mean, it, it's a very, I mean, it's almost more of a mood piece, really. Yeah. I mean, there are clear strands, but I feel like the the plot, um, if I'm being honest, it basically wouldn't have any real... Um, trajectory to it if it hadn't had that dedication at the start now I don't want to know, I mean it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say right because it makes the dedication at the start yeah, it's very I mean, clearly I mean come
1: that. on the plot in the end is quite, it's quite basic somehow there are these two guys one is rescued the, the other is the saviour and then there's the ex-wife and then suddenly the main guy disappears and the ex-wife appears and then yeah
5: to, that's that's it,
1: it. I mean, pretty much that's the film. I
0: would not mention that's that's going to be the trailer for when the film is released. <laughs> just Serena saying that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: No, yes, yeah, so come on. I mean, it's not that much in the end. So uh, for me, I guess it's all the uh, like metaphorical and allegorical part of it all, and then also like the cinematography was really yeah. stunning, and all the uh, the lights play, and the fact that it was like a counterpart for the fact that the guy is mute. So it kind of lost the sense and then it gains like the other one so it could be sight and all the lights sparkling and shimmering.
4: Yeah. yeah. I would I would say something similar, but I would add that there's a there's just a I dunno what you'd call it, you'd just say it's like an aching, undeniable film sense to the stuff. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily have immediately legible meaning to me, mm-hmm. but I was not thinking at any point, wow, well, what vagueness. I was just thinking, this is so specific, this is so yeah. detailed, these images are, you know, beautiful. There's a moment mm-hmm. where, for some reason, the main character is standing in a derelict high rise building, it's a mm-hmm. couple of floors mm-hmm. up, yeah. Yeah. suddenly the camera goes behind a pillar, very slowly yeah. just tracks, and then he's out the frame. Um, and yeah. I, I just about levitated that scene, not because it has any import, just because Wow, I was okay. I I was drawn in by that completely. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I'm pleased you mentioned that because that that it's a really short moment. It's, it's, it's quite funny that you and I have both both picked up on that because I mean it exists for all of about maybe 10, 15 seconds. Yeah. I think. Yeah. it, it's so it a doesn't have
1: an impact on the film like in the end, but no, it's, no, it's, it was so powerful and extraordinary.
0: But it, I think it kind of hammers home the fact that this film is is very visual. It's very it's very based on the performances as well. I mean mm-hmm. they're not necessarily doing a you know classic. Uh, story but it is very impactful in terms of the way you connect with those characters through imagery, metaphor and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I think well, maybe leave it there for to Ray. Um, as you can see it's probably quite a hard film to describe mm-hmm. but I think we would all heartily recommend it when I would am- be very surprised if that doesn't get a run in a few uh, art house cinemas around the country. Mm-hmm.
5: This is Pat. Hey, I'm fucking
1: Pat, Pat Pat don't know like. I like, I just like them setting them at It's either a hit or a miss, it can be quite rough. And as long as I've burst his lip or broke his nose by the time he goes out, I'm alright, be the bet. It makes me think like how my mum could have left me because I could never leave him Ever.
0: Okay so the next film is a documentary. The, uh, the first documentary we've looked at and it is Scheme Birds uh, which has also been quite successful. It won Best, Docu- Best International Documentary at the Tribeca Film Festival. I think it also won an award for its directors at the, the same time. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but the point is it's been quite well regarded and that's where it premiered. Um, so I've seen it, as has Josh and Amber. So, Amber, I'll come to you first on this just to give us a wee uh, summary of what the film's about and kind of your initial first impressions of it.
5: All right. So the film centers around uh, Gemma. Gemma, um, she lives on this uh, scheme in Motherwell in Scotland. Um, And she's very young. And she's, you know, just she doesn't have a mother. She's raised by her grandfather. Uh, She's in a very deprived area. And there's a lot of banality to her life. There's a lot of drinking and fighting and you either get knocked up or locked up, as she says at the beginning of the film. Like, there doesn't seem to be any prospects for anyone who lives there. And she even says at the beginning she expects she's going to spend her whole life in this game and she doesn't want to leave. She says that it's great, like...
0: Yeah, that, I mean that's quite a striking moment at the start of the film because um, she says it, the description of where she lives is quite an intriguing. One, so she said the scheme, which of course is kind of the the, the what in Scotland is called what I, I suppose American people would call project, basically. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, it's kind of it, it's all it's mostly council housing and she describes it as a non-snobby place to live which i found quite quite striking um and that kind of that that current goes through the the whole of the the film in terms of like how that's then framed her life and the, the lives of those around them um josh what did you make of the film
2: well having kind of no idea about the location or any of the background behind it before i'm not scottish you know i'm from east anglia i have no knowledge of that however i do feel like there were some things that i definitely did pick up on some kind of universal truths about uh, people kind of spending a lot of time drinking, smoking, doing drugs, whatever, and uh, how there is basically nothing else to do because there's not many jobs left, mainly because of certain
0: political people in the past. I mean, Thatcher. We thatcher. can say Thatcher. <laughs> Uh, you, you're, no, you're north of the border now, Josh. You can have a go at Thatcher without getting too worried about it. And, uh,
2: yeah, there are, like certain kind of similarities with certain places in kind of north of England. Um, and I feel, though, I'm from the south of England, I can definitely kind of identify with how that works. So I could connect with it on that level.
0: So it, it is quite striking, the way that the film sets its stall out. Um, so, I mean, Josh, you've, you've alluded to it there. Basically, very early on in the film, Gemma, who is the, I think, she's basically very early 20s, I think, when we we come to her. And most of the film has a uh, a voiceover from her. And the some of the first stuff that she says in voiceover is giving a little bit of a history of Jerviston, which known to the locals called Jervie, which is an area in Motherwell. And it's very clear from the opening scene that it is a very deprived area. There's not really a whole lot to, to do. Um, there's a lot of reference to folk who come to look at her grandfather's... Uh, I can't remember if it's racing pigeons or homing pigeons, but it's pigeons. Um, I think it, it's
5: just, like, the, the make of them. It's like a dog show or a cat show, but for pigeons. Like, they're looking at how the colouring is and the plumage. Yeah. They're not looking at their ability to do anything, they're just...
0: Yeah, yeah, and the people who go to it, there's a lot of reference made to, you know, the, you know some of the guys have been in prison, there's a lot of reference to people doing crazy stuff or having seen crazy stuff. And throughout the film, we get that, that voiceover continuing, but at the start, it really sets its stall out by making reference to the steelworks, uh, which used to be Motherwell, and, you know, which obviously Motherwell was very famous for, and them being shut down by Thatcher, and basically very overtly blaming her for a lot of the decline that followed. Now, you know, without getting into political discussions, I probably have some sympathy with that particular viewpoint, but the point is that it really does set that out uh, very early on. After that we follow Gemma as she um, basically takes up with a boyfriend that her grandfather, uh, adoptive grandfather I think if I remember correctly, um, really doesn't like. Uh, he does not He does seem to be bad news. But it then follows her as she then uh, takes up with him. They have a child together and it follows her life over the course of a period of time. Amber, how did you find that structure? Because obviously it could be a much shorter period of time and a very kind of like static portrait, but we do kind of go on a journey with Gemma. How did you find that?
5: Um, I mean, it's a very traditional sort of narrative for a young girl um, with no prospects. You know, she's probably like a teenager at that point and she's gotten pregnant with her boyfriend and they've got a flat together in uh, one of the tower blocks. Um, It's... I grew up near Dundee, like, I grew up in Bligawi, Perthshire. So, Dundee was the pregnancy, teenage pregnancy capital of Europe, I think, at one point.
0: And I, I lo- I'm from Dundee, so I can confirm that. Yeah. yeah.
5: <laughs> so, like, it was always, like, a warning danger thing, like, this could be you, like, all those uh, reality television shows. Like, it's a very common thing. And uh, it's a, almost, like, no, it, it's almost normal. For some people, like that's just what happens. That's just what it's like. So I feel like the film, like presents that normality to it. Like these things that would be very shocking or very, um, like terrible, happening to someone else is just her life.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that that's something which I think it really achieved very well because there are these things which it, it. It's a pretty grim portrait. I mean, I I mean, it really is. I mean, there's no opportunities. There's people getting uh, assaulted in the film. Like, in fact, one character. I I mean, this is the funny. This tells you a lot about the approach of the film that I keep talking about characters, right? But we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But one person we see in the film is basically then assaulted at one point in the film by another person who we've already seen in the film, and you know, we see very young kids uh, drinking, uh, we see drug taking, it, it's not a pretty portrait. But what I find remarkable about it is exactly what you said, it, it really gets across the fact that to these kids, and they are kids, it's normal. Uh, I mean that's how, how they go about their day because there are no opportunities, there's nothing there really. So I find that quite, quite incredible that they managed to get that across. And it does it with such a level of intimacy on Gemma's life. Um, like I, I think it, given that we have the voiceover from her, I think that really speaks to it. It's really allows you to identify with her. Which, I mean, okay, yes, I, I grew up in Scotland, but. I've got to be honest, it was quite a middle-class upbringing. I didn't, you know, I didn't... I I knew people in that sort of situation, but I've never experienced it myself. So being able to get uh, people to identify with it, and I think it's obviously done that elsewhere, because if it did that well at Tribeca, then it can obviously get other people to identify with it. I really I really think that's quite an achievement, and it does that in a variety of ways with the the shots, the access that um, they had to Gemma and her life. Josh, as the... As the non-Scot, I do have a question for you though, how much did you understand what was happening? Um, (laughs) And I more mean like what what was actually being said. Well, Especially
2: during the moments where it's like a montage of all the history and stuff that was quite clear to understand. I think they did that purposely so then people who couldn't understand then could. Um, And I picked up most of it. A lot of it was through the visual storytelling. in a way that I didn't really need to understand what they were saying to know what was being said just by their mannerisms, how they act. And it's a testament to um, how well they managed to film it that you can just pick it up without knowing. It was almost to me like watching a foreign film in some ways, because like I could not understand any of it at some points.
0: Yeah, I, I was right, because the di- the dialogue, I mean, we've got some really, really thick West Coast accents there and it can be quite, quite hard to decipher. But I think you've hit upon a key thing there in that it is a very visual film. Um, you know, a lot of documentaries, they can be quite uh, static. It's all kind of talking heads this really goes for a far more narrative approach. Uh, And something that actually reminded me of, and I'm no expert on documentaries, so I'm sure there are other films which have have done this, I'm just not aware of them to hand. There was a film which actually was at Tribeca uh, last year, uh, The Island of the Hungry Ghosts, which got a couple of screens in in Edinburgh. And it had this same thing, where it went for quite a narrative approach. Um, It had a lot of kind of, filler shots which were very beautifully done, were clearly meant to kind of evoke a certain atmosphere. In a way, it's almost like that approach has been taken and used for um, the Scottish schemes, effectively. Now, it's less it's less based in, there's no fictional bits. Um, so that film and other films have gone for this kind of hybrid approach where they have fictional elements inserted. That's not happened here, or at least if it did, I certainly didn't pick up on it. But it has that, that same, Uh, goal of trying to evoke the place and then take you on a journey with the people in it and i think that's why i keep referring to them as characters which i feel really bad doing right because these are these are real people these people actually you know these people exist and they are living their lives but you really feel like you are on a story with them and that happens with the visuals it also happens with the parts that they choose to put a voice over on and the visuals i think are often quite beautiful in some places, I mean, there's a lot of kind of like sunset shots and star night shots. All, lots all of all landscapes,
2: the lots of shots of just the kind of industrial estates, lots of shots of the council houses, and I thought
0: it was really well done. Lots
5: yeah. of birds as well,
0: like the metaphor of birds and flying and things like that. Lots and <laughs> lots of birds. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. And I think, as Amber said there, it's the, the that the, the birds. So the the pigeons. There's a tattoo on on Gemma's back that says, you know, let the free birds fly. Again, that's a metaphor through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. and I think that really is part of what makes the film so impactful. This is not—it's not some cheap Channel Four documentary where you're meant to. It's not poverty porn, really. Is what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get across. It's really presenting the people, and it does that in a really effective way. I think.
2: My worry with that is that. It might be a bit too much for some people outside for instance of scotland hopefully not because i thoroughly enjoyed it and i think it should be shown in cinemas all over and it should be you know able to be accessed easily um but my worry is that it will not be accessible to a bigger audience simply because people won't give it the chance to be
0: so just on that but i'm wondering if part of the what i find to be the effectiveness of this and i think it it speaks to like hopefully what i think will make it accessible elsewhere the team behind this are actually largely swedish
5: yes the two directors are both uh, ellen fisk and eleanor halland oh, at least one of them is a cinematographer and this is her first directoral uh, debut i think that's very interesting in film i think you can definitely see the influence of european and outside um the uk like interests in the film because For one thing, they have a character outright say that the English hate the Scots. The choice of using Loki, the Scottish rapper, as um, music um, in Mm -hmm. the end credits and at certain points throughout the film, like, that's a very, like, they're very definitely saying this in Scotland rather than the United Kingdom, and I think that's very um, interesting, as well for Scott and, like, for a European perspective, that maybe is that how they see us
0: yeah yeah it's good you mentioned music as well because obviously that that's a thread to the whole thing as well there's a lot of hip-hop on the the soundtrack i think there is a certain level of detachment on the director's part in terms of being able to present it objectively but they're very much presenting it as a a film of scotland really okay so i thought we'll leave it there for scheming birds uh, very good documentary i have no doubt that that will definitely show up um around the country at some point and i think it's definitely one that everybody should check out Thanks for listening. This episode of the show was produced by me, which is why some of it sounds like it's coming from the bottom of a well, but that's the price we pay for recording on the go. If you want to hear about Bait, Anyara, Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, and romantic comedy Love Type D, then tune in to the other special episode for the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Thanks for listening, and if you want to read more, go to Cinetopia Hub or Take One Cinema on Twitter. Or you can visit the website at cinetopiashow.com or takeonecinema.net. See you there.